Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Actung, actung. So this extract is from the diary of Heinz Nocker. Uh, who was a Luftwaffe fighter pilot on the Western Front, uh, who joined up early in 1940 and uh, went to a frontline action, I guess at the time of the zenith of the Luftwaffe, but also was still flying at at its nadir. And the extracts I've chosen are from end of November right up to Christmas and beyond in 1943. It was later published, the diary, as I Flew for the Fuhrer, and it's an absolutely fantastic book, um, incredibly honest, um, and you can't help but feel a little bit sorry for him, I have to say, and all his other beleaguered Luftwaffe colleagues as they systematically get slaughtered over Northwest Europe. Anyway, this extract is from the 19th of November, 1943. Yesterday, after an unsuccessful attempt to intercept an approaching Yank formation, we landed late in the evening at saint Trent in Belgium. The weather closed in. Holland and Belgium lay blanketed by a murky overcast and swept by heavy blizzards. Through a gap in the clouds, we climbed up to the usual altitude for operations. Inside the cloud bank, there was a serious risk of icing. It stretched like a vast expanse of white blanket northwards as far as the sea. Our good Messerschmitts were sparkling in the sunshine. From the Daimler-Benz engines, the exhaust traced long trails of moisture across the brittle cold of the pallid autumn sky. On our oxygen masks, the frozen breath congealed. So we headed north in close formation, just like migrant cranes. Base reported the approach of a strong formation of fortresses coming in over the sea. One of the planes, it was Furman, gradually fell behind the formation and began losing altitude, as if overtired after the long climb. To my radio inquiry, he answered that he was having trouble with his blasted engine. Over this sort of murk, anyone let down by his engine has no alternative but to bail out, if he values his life. The flight sergeant was in luck, however. His engine did not die altogether, and after we were airborne for an hour, the mission was abandoned because the enemy bombers turned back. Thunderbolts would have blasted his limping crate like a sitting duck. Through a friendly gap in the clouds, I was able to bring my flight down safely to St. Trent. Eric Furman was the last to land, and his aircraft rolled unsteadily towards the worn turf at the end of the runway. Light snow had begun to fall, and that is rather unusual here at this time of year. Even before we managed to thaw the chill out of our bones around the stove in the wooden canteen hut, our planes outside are coated with the congealing snow until they look like petrified monsters out of some fairy tale. When Furman came in to join us an hour later, We were sitting in a noisy group with steaming glasses of hot rum punch. His engine was all right again. The trouble had been found in the supercharger. By that time, we had started the inevitable game of cards and also emptied several glasses of the strong and heartwarming beverage. Furman at first did not want to join in the noisy gambling game. He merely shrugged and held out his hand, rubbing thumb and forefinger together. He never had any money. Somebody dragged him up to the table and pressed him into a chair. Somebody else tossed him two shining five-franc pieces. Many things must have played their part in the life of Eric Furman. But at the end of his life, the strangest part of all was played by those two five-franc pieces. 
Eric began to play, and something which had never happened before, he won. He increased his stake and won again. He kept on winning with incredible certainty. He took over the bank, and still he won. We were staggered. Hours passed. A thick cloud of blue tobacco smoke hung down from the low ceiling. Empty bottles and glasses were carelessly tossed aside to litter the floor. I watched Furman. He was posted to my flight several months ago. He became one of our comrades. The sky was his element. Like the rest of us, he felt at home there. With all its many changes of mood, the sky gives us a sense of remoteness from the war-torn battlefields of Europe over which we flew. Together with the rest of us, he became passionately addicted to the life of a fighter pilot, a combination of intense joy in flying and the thrill of battle. Because he also shared our sense of patriotism, he became a good soldier as well as a good pilot. For him, as for us, the wonderful fact of flying and the spirit of chivalry which still exists in battle far above the clouds resulted in a sense of unrestricted happiness and peace of mind. The ever-present prospect of sudden death adds a zest of life while it lasts. Dedicated as we are to the serious business of fighting for our country, we are able to enjoy the mere fact of existence with a superb exhilaration simply because it is so uncertain and precious. We regard life as a jug of delicious Rhine wine, intoxicated by the sense of compelling urgency to savour every last drop while we can, draining it to the dregs in an atmosphere of companionship and gaiety. When we were not in the air, Furman was always to be found somewhere around the station, in the hangars, canteen or at the dispersal point. He was simply always there. Nobody paid him any particular attention. If he was away, there was just a vague feeling that something was missing. He was background personified. He rarely opened his mouth, and even when he did, nobody listened to what he said. Once, when we were discussing our comrade and how quiet he always was, one of the numerous girls on the station remarked that, he's, that still waters run deep. She is smiling to herself at the time, and probably knew what she was talking about. As the game finished, the noisy high spirits at the start had been superseded by a tense silence. Furman continued winning to the very end. Then he contentedly placed in his shabby old wallet six 100-mark notes, and with a loving smile, added the two five-franc pieces. Then he quietly withdrew to his customary place in the background. At noon today, we started on our return flight. The weather was unchanged. When we landed at our home station, Furman was no longer with us. Once again, he had dropped far behind. His aircraft lost more and more altitude until finally it vanished altogether into the endless cloud bank. I reported him missing at the squadron operations room and by evening a general search was ordered. We waited in vain for a long time. Darkness fell. Then the telephone rang. News of Furman? The comrades watched anxiously as I take the receiver. There has been a crash on Ems Moor. A peat farmer found the wings and tail of a wrecked aircraft. Engine and cockpit had sunk with the body of the pilot into the quivering, bottomless swamp. In the pile of twisted metal, the salvage crew found some torn fragments of a flying suit and a wallet. Contents included six 100-mark notes and two five-franc pieces. Furman. The comrades stare at me frozen. I have a feeling that in future something will always be missing. The 23rd of November, 1943. At noon, today came news that Captain Delenga had been killed in a crash. On the wall of the aircrew room, we hang his picture up beside those of his dead comrades. Beneath each portrait, neatly printed in block capitals, is the rank and name with the date of death. Some bear a signature, and occasionally a humorous dedication also. Sergeant Volney, Lieutenant Steiger, Warrant Officer Kolber, Lieutenant Gerhard, Sergeant Kramer, 
Sergeant Durling, Lieutenant Killian, Flight Sergeant Furman. Who will be next? No one ever remained upstairs, wrote Steiger in his characteristic scrawl. We know exactly what that tall, fair-haired lad meant when he wrote beneath the smiling face. A thousand flights meant a thousand landings. Somehow you always have to come down one way or another, and then one day it'll be for the last time. Good thing you never showed up. I can't stand the sight of dead bodies. It was Methuselah, Baron, who spoke. For years he and Furman had been inseparable buddies. He just sits straddling a chair and gazing at the portrait of his friend. He cannot get over his death. He does not make a fuss or complain, but seems to find an outlet for his grief in quiet, bitter cursing, that of all people it would have to be Furman who went down on the northern moors. Methuselah is right, of course, in what he says about the dead. We all know exactly what he means. It is not a feeling which can easily be put into words. Every line in the features of our comrades and every trait of their characters is familiar to us. There is the memory of their gestures, walk, voice, laughter, remaining when they themselves are not with us. A smashed dead body does not anywhere fit into the picture of the comrade we know. The discordant sight repels us. Therefore we avert our eyes, lest the memory of a good comrade be poisoned, the mosaic shattered, the picture in our minds destroyed by the sight. No, let us not look. We love life. What death has accomplished cannot be allowed to form part of our world. Besides, they're not really dead. Dieter, Delenga, Furman, Steiger, Kolber and the rest. They're simply no longer with us. They have stayed away. God has taken them into himself. That is what I want to tell their mothers. They have remained up in the clouds, our clouds which we all know and love so well. Do we not always long for them whenever we are weary of this crazy world? That thing which sank into the northern moor, that thing which was fished out of the sea, those shattered remains on the rocky crags, they have nothing in common with our memories of Thurman Dieter Delenga. Fellows, do you not think they would die laughing at the sight of our gloomy faces down here? You can bet that old scoundrel Thurman is just waiting for the next one to join him to start another card game. It was Johnny Fest who spoke. His humour is irrepressible. It makes me sick, growled Methuselah. His motto is, Swearing is the laxative which purges the soul. He has already written it beneath his portrait, in case it, too, has to join the others on the wall. 11th of December, 1943. On the 26th and 27th of November and 1st of December, we engaged in combat with American fighters over the Ruhr and Rhineland. Today I brought my score up to 20. It was another fortress. 18th of December, 1943. For three days I have been supposed to go on leave but I have not yet managed to get away. The Americans come over every day. Yesterday I was actually sitting in the car which was supposed to have driven me to the train when the alert sounded over the loudspeakers. I jumped out and ran across to my Gustav. My driver shook his head and even Aunt said that I really needed a few days rest. At an altitude of 10,000 feet, I have to abandon the mission because my undercarriage would not retract. Venikers took over command. They shot down two fortresses and a thunderbolt. It looks as if they will somehow be able to manage without me after all. Today I am off. Jungmeyer drives me to the railway station. Standing on the platform, I watch the squadron sweeping into action once more. For a long time I am able to watch them from the window of the moving troop train. For the first time in almost a year, I am not accompanying them. The 20th December, 1943. Lilo and I are again in Berlin. Lilo is his wife. 
We thought of having some fun there for a few days, visiting old friends and seeing the opera and latest theatre shows. But we hardly recognise Berlin. It is so changed. Hundreds of thousands of foreigners pack the city. Dutch, French, Danes, Belgians, Romanians, Bulgarians, Poles, Czechs, Norwegians, Greeks, Italians, Spaniards. Every language in Europe is to be heard in the overcrowded cinemas, theatres, cabarets, restaurants, metropolitan railway lines and buses. Everywhere they push aside the Berliners. Lilo and I are unable to get a seat anywhere. The confused babel of languages and the crowds of people wherever we go make me jittery. People here live as if there were no such thing as war anywhere in the world. Our life on operations may be basic and primitive, but at least it is real. That is something we soldiers understand out there, as we risk our very lives every day in the great life-and-death struggle. It is a shock to find that here in the city people are interested only in their own selfish amusements. This typical base error is governed by a thoroughly civilian mentality, blind to the fundamental realities to which we on operations are accustomed. I see the staff officers who are stationed in Berlin, sleek, well-groomed, immaculate in their dress uniforms. I have been living too long in a different world and have developed a different scale of values. The atmosphere of this place just seems to make me sick. 22nd of December 1943 Together with Ingrid we have gone to visit my parents at Scheratz. Here at home with my family I at last begin to find a little peace. With a horse and sleigh I go for long drives through the wintry countryside along the banks of the Varta. Lilo and I are happy to be together. Ingrid is a pretty little curly head and I find it good to be here. Even so, I rather miss my comrades in the airfield, the smell of planes and the roaring engines. 26th of December 1943 Another Christmas has come and gone. War still reigns upon the face of the earth. Early this morning a telegram comes from the squadron. Falkensama killed. Sommer wounded. Specht. The commanding officer drafted it himself. He has not ordered my leave cancelled or an immediate return to this unit, but I understand how badly he must need me now, with Captain Falkensama, who was in command of the 4th, killed, and Senior Lieutenant Sommer, who was in command of the 6th, wounded. I am the only flight commander he now has left who is fit for operations. Two hours after receiving the telegram, I am on the first train out. Lilo understands. She is brave, as only a soldier's wife can be. She stands waving and smiling as the express begins to move. Will we ever meet again? 20th of December, 1943. I travelled all day and night. Jungmeyer met the train at Wunsdorf. He drives me to the last few miles out to the airfield. The squadron was transferred here a few days ago. It is a well-equipped peacetime station, most up-to-date in its construction. I report immediately to the commanding officer. Senior Lieutenant Nocker reporting back from leave, sir. Specht smiles as we shake hands. I knew you would not let me down, Knocker. I really need you now. He tells me how Falkensamer was killed. I am distressed about this first-rate officer. Immaculate in appearance, tall, slim, he was popular and had an easy charm of manner. His home was in Vienna, and he had previously served in the Austrian Air Force. His father had been an imperial officer in the First World War. He had a particularly charming wife, whom Lilo and I had met at Jever a few months ago. Falkensamer was very tall, but Specht, who is now seated in front of me in his leather flying suit, is short. He is actually the shortest man in the whole squadron, yet all who have any contact with the man are impressed by his dominating personality. Of all the officers I have met, none has influenced me to quite the same extent. Specht is a model of the conscientious Prussian soldier. He is as hard on himself as he is his subordinates, and expects them to maintain the same Spartan ideal of conduct which he exemplifies.
He lost an eye during a dogfight at the beginning of the war. With his one remaining eye, he looks like a buzzard. All that matters to spect is battle. His only topics for conversation are fortresses, thunderbolts, mustangs and lightnings. Once he dragged me out of his bed in the middle of the night simply in order to discuss some tactical problem. Women are anathema to him. He has forbidden his officers to bring any of their wives or girlfriends onto the station. If he spots a pilot out with a girl of questionable reputation, he takes immediate and stern disciplinary action. During the last ten months he has shot down twenty heavy bombers and thus is now ahead of me. His accuracy as a marksman is positively uncanny. He is a most difficult commanding officer and I have had many a row with him. A few weeks ago he reprimanded me because some of my pilots organised a party and went dancing at a village inn near the airfield with a number of girls who were better known for their charms than for their morals. He ordered me to take disciplinary action against my men. I refused to do so. I cannot do that, sir, I told him. Then you are not fit to command a flight, he roared. The man was wild with rage. In that case, sir, you will have to find a new commander for the fifth. I shall have you relieved of your command and all your pilots grounded. May I remind you, sir, that during the last few months, which have been difficult for all of us, more enemy aircraft have been brought down by my pilots than by the other two flights in your headquarters put together. I know that Specht has actually a very high opinion of my fifth, but nothing will ever induce such a reserve. But nothing will ever induce such a reserved man to admit as much. In spite of his capricious temperament, however, I have a deep respect for him. Unquestionably, he is a great man. Thirty-first of December, nineteen forty-three. We had planned a party in town on New Year's Eve. At seventeen hundred hours, however, the order came from Speck that no officer or aircrew personnel might leave the camp. Instead, they were ordered to attend a joint mess dinner in the officers' mess. Speck had never been cursed so much as he was following the announcement of this order. When we enter the mess at twenty hundred hours, we are all in high spirits. Several bottles of liquor have been emptied to drown our sorrows. Speck calls us to attention and briefly explains the reason for his order. Gentlemen, I have received word from Division that an important decision is to be made tonight. In order that the maximum operational efficiency of the air crews may be maintained, I have decided to forbid the usual New Year's Eve celebrations. We shall spend the remaining hours of the old year here together and retire to bed immediately after midnight. He spoke in his usual ringing voice of command. What each of us thought we kept to ourselves. At midnight precisely, momentous news arrives from Division. Specht is promoted to Major. He's absolutely staggered. He'd expected some special operational assignment for the squadron. Amid loud cheers, he immediately dismisses the pilots. In a few minutes, none of them are left in the mess. 1st of January, 1944. My men are sleepy and suffering from hangovers when they appear at the dispersal point. I heard them return singing from town in the small hours of the morning. My own head is splitting also. All day long, we can only hope that just for this one day, the Yanks will not come over. 1944 is off to a liquid start.